Ever since the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990 and Francis Fukuyama declaring the end of history with the ascendancy of the Washington Consensus, America has led the charge of globalization as a means of expanding and solidifying its empire. In theory, this means the general liberalization of political systems favoring democracies over authoritarian regimes and reductions in restrictions on trade, capital, and labor. In practice, this has meant violent overthrows of dissident regimes, wholesale liquidation of industry from first world countries to cheaper overseas locations to benefit oligarchic business, and the importation of cheap immigrant labor and voter bases hostile to native populations. Tonight, John Q. Publius joins us to talk about his new book detailing this process in America with special focus on Maine, where the globalist agenda has just started to take its hold after rampaging throughout much of the more populated areas of the country and the world. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. A new world order. But we are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been time, dear. Hello and welcome to the Myth of the 20th Century. Uh, today we have uh, a nearly complete house. Hans might be joining us later, uh, but we have a very special guest, uh, John Q. Publius, who just put out a, a book called The Way Life Should Be, and we're going to be delving into what that is about. Uh, but before we get into it, real quick, uh, Hank had someone to thank. Yeah, a very special thank you to uh, to Claire. Um, she's uh, on top of a, a very nice uh, written uh, contribution. She's also uh, made a, a nice uh, donation so that we can keep uh, the site uh, up and running and try to get some of these uh, fun books that we talk about. So uh, shout out to Claire. Thank you, Claire. Is this our first female donation? Uh, quite possibly. <laughs> quite possibly. <laughs> Didn't know they listened, um, but there's a first for everything. It, it, I'll tell. I'll, let me, for my part, I'll say it's not the first, but it's the first confirmed to actually be female donation. Yeah, yeah. We never know who's uh, who's who on the anons that give out all these various communiques and whatnot, but. Uh, Yes, we can confirm this. So, I guess we're we're getting closer to being woke. And since that's the topic of your book, John, uh, <laughs> tell us about it. tell us about the way life should be. Hey, um, pretty soon that fucking sweet Jew money will be rolling in. You know? Yeah, sure it will. Sure it will. Then we'll have to exactly. talk about something else. But before very, that, we very can lucrative. Have, we can it's have a very lucrative on. thing. This kind of politics, huh? <laughs> So John, John, I can I can uh, I can be the interviewer, but if you just wanted to get kind of give us a, a quick rundown, you've got a great forward by the well-renowned Kevin McDonalds, um, and that was impressive. I, I know you've been writing on Occidental Descent. I'm sure you were able to talk to him through that. But uh, tell us about what 
what your book is trying to do here, I I would say that the subtitle kind of says most of it, The Globalist Demographic War in America with Maine as a microcosm. Um, I would imagine you have some things to say about Maine, but I think recently, and I saw this uh, maybe a year or so ago, they were, they were importing Somalis, not to Minneapolis, uh, which is now a completely uh, Swedishized no-go zone, but uh, for more historical uh, African import reasons, but now Maine is becoming one too. So what, what's going on there? Like how, how did yeah. you come across all this? And Can I add yeah. in, let me, uh, I, I would also like to add, would you please tell our audience how to obtain your book if they are interested from what they hear today? Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. So first of all, the book, the way life should be is it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. Uh, and it will probably be banned at some point, I would imagine, because it doesn't pull any punches. And it can be acquired through the publisher Ostara, O-S-T-A-R-A, uh, publications. And, yeah, so basically I noticed that in uh, around about a year ago, there were randomly a couple hundred Angolans and Congolese that were in Portland, Maine. And I said, okay, this is uh, unusual. And they had all basically or seemingly come out of nowhere. And so I kind of had this light bulb moment, like, all right, I'm going to see if I can track down where the hell these people came from. Like, how did they get here? And we know about a lot of the Somalis and stuff. And, you know, the city of Lewiston in in Maine itself has got about 6,000 Somalis uh, that have all arrived really since after um, the turn of the millennium. But this was especially unusual because it seemed like most of the people involved in the city government didn't even uh, in Portland, didn't even know that these people were arriving. So it was like, okay, this is really bizarre. Uh, Cause normally as the book goes into in great detail, they're pretty much lockstep in terms of like facilitating these people into the West. And so I started digging and I, I found out that uh, a charity called Catholic charities had paid for their bus fare from San Antonio, Texas up to Portland, Maine. And then I started kind of digging further from there. And basically it kind of, I fell down the rabbit hole and I pretty much just, you know, I'm kind of an obsessive person. So I said, all right, well, I kind of want to figure out how this whole network works. Like how are these people doing all of this? And it kind of kept going from there. I kept going deeper, but also wider and, and tracing the web for where the money's coming from and what the various pull factors are and who the main actors are behind it. And, you know, the, the, the ideology as well as the economics, because they're both very central to the, the decision to bring these people here, uh, because that face, you know, uh, on the surface, it doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. You've got, uh, you know, especially after Corona, where I talk a little bit about in the book, you know, they talked about this, this pandemic, right? But for some reason, despite the fact that there's a global pandemic, the U.S. government, the State Department was still able to, to facilitate over 4,000 quote-unquote refugees into the United States from corona-positive areas. So there's obviously way more going on than meets the eye. Well, it's ironic because uh, from what I understand, like refugee importation is a business. And I think a lot of people, even people on the right, like you know these kind of interesting tidbits, don't realize that most uh, mainline Protestant and uh, Catholic churches are huge government contractors. 
And one of the things that they specialize in, in, uh, in Minneapolis, as I recall, it's, uh, it's, uh, some of the, uh, the Lutheran, uh, uh, Lutheran social services or something like that, uh, on the East coast, it's a lot of the, uh, the Episcopalians, uh, and then the Catholics sort of, uh, all over, but they have, uh, major government contracts for providing, uh, quote unquote services, uh, to, uh, refugees, essentially, uh, you know, the care and maintenance of, uh, their new pets. Uh, and this actually provides like a huge portion of the operating budget for, especially a lot of these decaying mainline Protestant, uh, denominations like the Episcopalian church gets a double digit percentage of its revenue. Uh, from the United States federal government, and then another slathering from the uh, the states. So, I mean, it's it's interesting that at the same time that their actual uh, churches are shut down, they're still engaging in their now fundamental mission, which is you know their their quote unquote social outreach mission of uh, adjusting American society. Uh, in the uh, the direction that the people who control those institutions uh, would like to see it go. I, I've been, unfortunately, in more than one church where I've seen documentation uh, related to the, these types of programs. Um, I actually, the last time I went to a church was the the time when they played a video showing how the money that the church collects is going to these types of things. And that was the last time I went. Um, it really strikes me as, um, from their point of view, obviously a way to increase membership and give their members something to feel good about, much like perhaps what's going on with these BLM um, comeuppances throughout the country at the moment. Uh, but you got to wonder really what is the deeper motivations that they don't really tell you about, uh, you know, uplift and helping it's probably about membership. It's about power. It's obviously about money. Um, but really, what is driving this? I guess that's the the main question I would ask you, John, because this well, has happened all over so I, the world at this point could, in European countries. Yeah. Well, so I would also like to add, oh, Maine is a very wide state. So what you know? What what did you discover as to why Maine specifically was being targeted for these kinds of programs? Um, yeah, so it, actually it's uh, Maine and all of the top refugee resettlement areas are all at least 90% white. Uh, right now, per capita, Fargo, North Dakota is receiving the most, but Minneapolis, Minnesota, Boise, Idaho, uh, a lot of the Rust Belt areas, particularly in upstate New York, uh, Ohio, the northern three New England states, although all of New England, because even the, quote, diverse New England states are still pretty white. Um, those areas are all getting just absolutely pounded with the stuff because the immigrants, legal and illegal, naturally gravitate towards the major cities and where there are already enclaves of similar type people. So the refugee resettlement thing is basically a way to inject these people in areas where they wouldn't naturally, well, they wouldn't really naturally wind up anywhere if they weren't being pulled and pushed, uh, but that they're, you know, given the conditions of, of current year that they would naturally quote unquote wind up in. Right. And so like that is an intentional project 
more ideological than anything, but there are secondary economic factors. I go into a bit in the book, like, believe it or not, there is like a, like a mestizo enclave in northeastern Maine, basically driven by these big agra companies who want cheap labor to go show up and pick their blueberries and process the seafood and stuff. And there's this guy, Jack DeCostro, at one point says, you know, I want the mestizos because they respect me and the gringos don't. Uh, so there, there, there's a lot of that economic stuff too. And yeah, the refugee resettlement agencies, the churches, there are nine major ones that contract with the United States government. They all get millions upon millions of dollars from the U S government. They then farm them out to their subcontractors across the country. Some States have multiple, some have one. And then those, some of them are secular. Some of them are religious, um, yeah, you, you mentioned LERS, the Lutheran Immigration Refugee Services, I think it's called, is the one in Minnesota. Uh, Episcopal, the Episcopalians are pretty big in Maryland. Uh, the Catholic charities are pretty big in the Northeast and kind of uh, th- through the middle of the country. And they get basically paid per head. And it starts at the very, very top. It starts with the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees and the inter- um the International Organization for Migration, they basically cherry pick them in the United States. This is not in that book, but this information will be in an upcoming book uh, I'm working on where I focus more on Europe and the other Western countries. They all have basically agreements. All the Western countries, all the major ones have agreements with the UN and the IOM, which are sister organizations, to take these people. They're basically selected by this internationalist a globalist organization and then farmed out across the globe. And the really disconcerting thing is it's in- becoming increasingly privatized. So in places like Canada, private corporations and or individuals can sponsor refugees to come over beyond what the government is saying for their cap. And one of the, I want to say it's BlackRock, one of these Jewish uh, vulture hedge fund places said that they, their goal is to get the Canadian population to 100 million by 2100. And presumably, yeah, given the birth rates, which are below replacement level, that's going to come all from immigration and more, uh, you know, third world fecundity in the great white north. Yeah. I mean, for context, the current population of Canada is like 35 million. Yeah, it's shocking uh, how far they're willing to go with this. I remember when that's in in like a a pretty narrow strip. (laughs) Like when you're when you're talking about Canada, like once you get beyond, it's like over half of the population is within 50 miles of the u.s border yeah that's right so i mean that's that's just that's like favela like <laughs> cold favela i guess is the uh, the archetype hey, it vindicates my fucking position on the canadian menace man <laughs> uh, well, okay um I, I, i'd like to ask a question if you don't mind i know it's a little bit of an obvious question but i think it behooves repeating and I would like your opinion, John, as to what exactly the strategic motivations behind these enemy operations are. Well, yeah, I think it's it, from my my opinion. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly for, for a long time. I thought it was more economic and a little less ideological. And then I've kind of gravitated to sort of 50 50. And I think I think it's shifted a little bit even more to me, like a little bit more ideological and then economics is like let's say ideological 1a economics 1b and then i would say just raw hatred and and uh 
disdain um, one seat, actually. So I think it's I think it's a mixture of those three factors. And I think that they're all very closely tied into each other. Um, around the same time that I was writing this book, I have a second one, actually, that's come out called The God That Failed. I kind of step back and uh, that's through Black House Publishing in the UK. Uh, I take a step back and kind of look at the whole system and how it all ties together. But, you know, as I was going through the writing the book on Maine, first of all, the the upshot to doing Maine was, first of all, I'm from New England, so I'm, I'm pretty familiar with the state. But secondly, in a smaller place, it's easier to pick out the subvert the subversive actors. And also people can see basically the early genesis of what's going on in real time. So it's like in a lot of other places across the West and in the United States, this has been going on for a long time. In Maine, this has only been going on since 2001. I mean, I, you could, I guess you could say there have been some scattered re- refugee resettlement uh, things going on in the 80s and 90s. But it was very, very uh, low scale. And most of that was done. Um, you guys will probably be shocked to know that it was done by the Hebrew Immigrant Aid Society. Yeah, I mean, I lean very much towards the the idea that the, the economic side of it is uh, it's made lucrative enough to incentivize it, but it does not provide the like nobody's really getting rich off of this as far as I understand it. Uh, yeah. it it's not like with the exception of some uh, some organizations that actually depend on uh, migrant labor but that's usually not refugees per se like you've got right. ranchers and farmers uh, and people of that uh, nature who absolutely uh, depend on this infrastructure but my understanding is that like nobody really makes a dime off of uh, Somalis except for like a horde of cat ladies making essentially 40 grand a year at best I, uh, I think that's a good way to sum it up uh, upper management positions i mean in europe uh in germany at least and you can extrapolate to most other countries uh in europe i believe the refugees uh, that has happened that, that have come in the past let's say five years or so um their unemployment rate is like hovering near 90 percent uh, so they're they uh, are most certainly a drain on the public treasury they're not being productive and they're obviously destabilizing the the social fabric of the country, which is uh, a not so hidden cost. I mean, you, it's hard to put a number on that, but just there have been uh, numerous town hall meetings where Germans will implore their their elected so called elected officials to stop this, uh, and they're they're saying that they can't take their granddaughter down the street anymore for fear of being harassed or, or worse, uh, and. These are small towns in Germany that have no relationship to the people that are being pumped into their country. And it, it's criminal. And it's it's certainly not justified economically. But I think the way you put it, Hank, is probably right. It's it's enough to grease the skids. Uh, but it's it's being paid for by the, the tax dollars of the country and by the middle class who have to put up with with these people and live with them and the elites are, are really seemingly driving it for reasons but we'll uh hopefully flush that out a little bit because it's hard to put your head into these drug-addled strange people's minds but it it just seems like there's something going on obviously the the jq is a big factor but there's a lot of other people that uh, the Catholics and 
the Protestants who are involved. Uh, and you've got to really figure out what is motivating them. And it, it's, again, I, I bring it back to what's going on right now with these protests uh, and trying to explain why these white women in particular are prostrating themselves in front of these these blacks uh, who have done nothing for them in their in their whole life, and more than that, they've caused damage. Uh, I mean, the statistics are each African American costs net uh, nine thousand dollars. I think it's per year to the United States. Uh, so these people are not enslaved; we are enslaved to them. And who's doing it, and, and why are they doing it? is ultimately, I think, what your book is about. And it's frustrating. I, I just, I'm trying to contain, you know, my, my frustration, and especially with all this nonsense going on right now, how sick and, and, and messed up people are over this stuff. And they, they just seem to want to flog themselves and continue the, the self-defenestration of, of a nation. Um, it's reverse colonization. It's, um, it's trillions of dollars of welfare. It is never going to end. And yeah, I mean like, who, so my, my second section that I wanted to maybe ask you about were aside from the sort of usual suspects, you, you do a really good job in this book of documenting the, the players involved. Uh, I would, I would start out and say that there's a whole slew of NGOs that, have been involved in this uh, refugee importation program and all the propaganda that comes with it uh, about how they're welcome and how they're wonderful contributing members where the opposite seems to be true. I mean, you know, the irony is, you know, this BLM protest that has happened uh, in the past month uh, was over a white police officer uh, killing a, a African American, a Native American citizen. But the, the irony is that couple years ago, Justine Diamond, I think she's an Australian tourist, white woman. She was murdered by a Somali police officer in Minneapolis who was not even born here. Um, so, and nobody obviously rioted over that. And this point has been raised many times, but it's, um, it's just never enough. And, and so they're bringing in more racial tension. So some of the NGOs that you mentioned, uh, the obvious ones, the ADL, APAC, SPLC, but also Black Lives Matter, uh, Catholic Charities USA, uh, the Ford Foundation, I think it's a mention, but they're kind of an, an old usual suspect. So what what binds all these groups together? Uh, is it, do they have anything in common or they just happen to be coincidentally involved in this? And then there's other groups that I'd like to get into, but maybe let's start with the NGOs. Yeah, so the, the different NGOs, um, they, they all kind of have been on board uh, with this project, there, there have been a few that have been kind of going early Ford, you mentioned is, is definitely one of the early ones in the eighties. They actually really started to create the institutional framework for this kind of thing, which has expanded well beyond immigration. Although that's kind of the major one. Now, a lot of the same players that you see involved here are also involved in the LGBT stuff and, and all the rest of it. But a lot of them, they, they actually do coordinate. They give money to each other. They will hold symposia. Um, a lot of the same figures kind of jump from foundation to foundation. And they're, they're very much, a lot of them are starting to actually fuse with 
a lot of these hedge funds and the vulture capitalists. So they're actually kind of, they have these things, these donor advised funds, which are supposedly philanthropic, but they're really kind of both an investment for the people investing in them. And also the money can go to a lot of these causes, which then the quote causes kind of grease the skids for certain things that have um, a financial benefit to the individuals involved. So they, they're kind of calling it philanthropic. I call it philanthropic capitalism, uh, sarcastically, obviously. But the idea is like they are trying to kind of meld a lot of these things together. So there's a lot of overlap where kind of the narrow focus of the foundation in, in let's say, in the 20th century, increasingly in the 21st, is seeing things like a lot of these like major hedge funds uh, like Seth Klarman, uh, Paul Singer, you know, a lot of the, the kind of the Jewish vulture capitalists also invest in these uh, the, with these foundations. They have their own foundations in many cases, and it kind of is a circular thing where they're, they're kind of sending money between the different things they have. Yeah, a general general ideology, a lot of it, it, it's not just obviously limited to Jewish figures, although they're, you'll see a whole lot of Jewish names in the, <laughs> in the book. Um, some of it is just uh, this kind of weird Christian universalist uh, kind of camp of the saints sort of thing where, where whites have just gone totally. Uh, I do subscribe to the pathological altruism theory. I do think a lot of whites through, uh, through, through subversion, a lot of it through subversion, but also in the natural life cycle of any civilization, uh, things start getting wacky at the end of it. Um, you know, and I, I'm not, I don't, mean to say that I think like all white people are going to die out, but I think this iteration of Western civilization is coming to an end. This one that's obsessed with liberalism, this kind of post enlightenment, uh, uh, civilization. So I think it's, a, it's a huge, it's the, it's a, the whole era is kind of coming to an end. A lot of things are happening at once and you have this kind of ruling class that makes, uh, that is able to dictate and has control because they have control of the finances and the media and all these things that a lot of them are the same so again some of them it's ethnic in-group nepotism where they try to advance their own group interests a lot of them have issues with white people for whatever reason uh and enact those grievances uh some of them are just nakedly greedy some are all three and then you have a lot of these figures a lot of the christian kind of universalists who are are basically in this weird uh, they're almost fetishizing the sacrifice in their own oblivion. Um, it's like kind of almost like an end of days type scenario, which I think a lot of people are, are, are feeling that. And it's kind of an intangible thing. And I can't quite put my finger on exactly, you know, where all of that's coming from. But I do think that it is palpable that we are at the end of an era. I think people can feel it in the air, like things are going to change and very dramatically, and at the same time, you have all these people who are basically they've been cruising on Easy Street for a very long time and they've been kind of animated through all those one or all three of those factors on top of that. So um, there's, there's kind of a lot that goes to it. But I mean, whites are just naturally more altruistic in general. So, you know, when you take people, for example, like Swedes who, you know, really don't have any tradition of outsiders in their very homogeneous environments or, or Maine for that matter, Minnesota, wherever uh, they, they're not used to dealing with this kind of stuff. And the first thing that they do is, is they actually just try to treat these people just like they're them. 
And then when that fails, you know, there's a whole bunch of propaganda and other mechanisms to sort of ensure that they have to view the people this way. But a lot of it's inborn and a lot of it's exacerbated through various means as well. And, you know, there's there's a whole host of factors, really. So I have a, I have a few more groups of sources of this stuff, um, at least the agenda and the the forces behind it. So I don't know how much in depth you want to go in each of these, but I'll just list off what I think are the primary suspects behind uh, pushing this agenda into the Western world. Uh, so you've got politicians, obviously more left-leaning the more they do this, but you also have the, the Bush family uh, subscribing to this type of a neoliberal uh, NAFTA, uh, keeping open borders, uh, George W. Bush speaking Spanish, uh, Jeb Bush marrying a Mexican lady, their kid looking like what you'd expect. Um, you've got corporations which have all jumped on board to the, the bandwagon with this BLM craze. Uh, Ashley Ray Goldberg, who happens to be Jewish, uh, actually did a very good listing of all the corporations that have either put out some token or more um, demonstration of support behind the Black Lives Matter movement. And the list is uh, very, very long. I mean, it's we're, we're talking enormously well-known brand names and the list is over 100 long. And I'll, I'll put a link to that. Um, and then you have billionaires. You've got uh, Michael Bloomberg. You've got Bill Gates, uh, Warren Buffett, Sheldon Adelson. Uh, and you have the government, obviously, with their politicians and puppet politicians, uh, the Obamas, the Clintons, uh, I mentioned, uh, the Bushes, uh, but also the organizations within the government, like the CIA, which is a little bit harder to analyze because they operate within secrets. But you have their their propaganda arms, which I, I'd like to go into in depth at some point, but we don't have to focus on it at the moment. But I, I have quite a few friends who will listen to NPR um, Hank, I believe you, you, uh, qualify as one of those, uh, just to Routinely. see what, yeah, just to see what the, the narrative is. And, well, and I, I really do advocate, like if you can stomach that, it really is like, uh, you know, tuning into, uh, Pravda or whatever, because the party line becomes, uh, exceedingly clear. If you, I mean, if you, if you just like listen to their gay, like here's some whimsical music or whatever, like that kind of shit, it's pointless. But if you actually listen to uh, the news and especially the uh, the call-in shows, if you're in an area where the uh, local NPR affiliate has uh, call-in shows, because uh, some people don't realize this is maybe technical minutia, but it, I find it interesting. Uh, if you listen to like your your normal morning show, whatever, all of those callers are are fake. You can actually find the Craigslist uh, ads for people uh, to call in. But uh, NPR does kind of a variant of the same thing, or a lot of the kind of uh, local call in shows because they're mostly localized. Uh, they do a similar thing where uh, you'll have callers that are kind of uh, pre selected. They're informed of the subject matter and. Surprise, surprise, uh, like a third of the people calling in are going to be this kind of cast of uh, professional workers at nonprofits who work with people affected by whatever issue they're talking about. And they have some in insightful comments. And it's clearly uh, 
combination public relations slash propaganda, I mean, implying there's a difference, uh, exercise going on. So I find it extremely uh, handy because, you know, you, you get a, uh, a very straightforward because it's all delivered in, uh, in sound bites to kind of wash over you. There's, there's absolutely no nuance you interpret immediately what the kind of narrative uh, is supposed to be that will be ruthlessly enforced uh, from the, uh, you know, the middle in both directions, I guess, optimistically. Yeah, so th- those are just examples. Uh, and, and PBS, which I've relatively been able to stomach much more than NPR, so PBS being the television version, obviously, as opposed to NPR's radio, uh, but Sesame Street, which obviously I haven't watched in a while, but I just read headlines about this stuff. Uh, Sesame Street is now pushing a virtual town hall to teach young children about racism. Now, not that they weren't doing that implicitly before, but you know, now that we're all in, I guess we're not in lockdown anymore. This is the other irony about how how you're on only a dime let out of lockdown if you are engaging in the politically favored activities. That's correct. So we, uh, we're now having a virtual town hall, I guess, for the kids about racism on Sesame Street. But these are just examples. I mean, corporations, politicians, government, billionaires, NGOs, we talked about a little bit. It's, it's amazing. And you, you document all of it in your book. So is there anywhere in there you want to just uh, take a stab at you know, dissecting uh, at the moment, John? Yeah, sure. So um, it, is, it is really interesting. I, I try to go to the the left-wing sources as much as I can to, to see kind of what they're saying and, you know, how they rationalize this stuff to themselves. And, uh, you know, actually the me- the media point, this is a very important point in the book. Uh, six of Maine's seven largest newspapers are printed by the same guy. Uh, or, sorry, six of Maine's seven largest newspapers are owned by the same guy and the seventh is printed by him. Uh, and he is Jewish. Um, and that basically is the control of the entire daily news supply for the entire state of Maine. So again, it's like who needs uh, even a state-run media when you have this guy who's totally on board? You know, New York Times wrote an article celebrating him. Oh, he's this great guy and everything. It's like, well, you know, I thought you guys were all about plurality. You know, well, obviously only when it suits breaking up something that they don't like. But anyway, um, you know, you have that kind of uniform narrative that is is always being shoved down our throats. And, and I do cover a lot of that stuff, you know, Washington Post, New York Times, the usual suspects, they all kind of converge. And, and I, you know, obviously I don't know what's going on behind the scenes because I'm not privileged enough to be in on those meetings, but it can't be a, it can't be a coincidence that all of a sudden all of like New York Times, Washington Post, all these places are releasing articles about like Maine or New Hampshire. They're too white. What are we going to do about it? Drawing national attention to it. Um, you know, that that to me is clearly in light of everything we've seen, not not coincidental. Um, well, have you uh, in that vein? Um, I, I apologize because I have not bought your book. It is uh, on the uh, on my uh, list, uh, but uh, I have not read it, I guess I should say, uh, in advance of this. But are you familiar with the uh, the Obama uh, uh, housing dispersion initiative, essentially, where the uh, the goal was to take uh, various HUD grants and to encourage population migration of you know our div- our diverse citizenry uh, from uh, kind of more core urban areas, specifically into uh, suburban purple uh, state areas. 
Yeah, I did. I, I read, um, I want to say it was Paul Kersey wrote something about Ferguson, uh, Missouri, how they basically had done something very similar, uh, like Section 8 vouchers. Um, yeah, I mean, this was like, if you look at the areas affected by this, it's clear that it had a explicitly political agenda because it wasn't merely taking uh, people from, uh, say, you know, the old, like, uh, there's kind of like a woke centrist meme uh, that goes along with the entire meme plex of uh, all these politicians are just bought and paid for by these special interests, man. So uh, property developers are like the big example that uh, Steve Saylor um, uses this uh, analysis a lot that uh, there's kind of an ongoing decades long uh, project to get the blacks, remove them as far as possible from the core commercial tax generating downtown of Chicago to literally anywhere else so that you free up that, uh, that space for profitable development on the one hand and to, uh, to feed the pension on the other. But that just requires that they go literally anywhere else. The, uh, the Obama administration uh, housing grants were specifically directed not just at like, hey, let's get these guys from Chicago to suburban Chicago or from New York City to suburban New York. But, you know, maybe we can uh, maybe we can arrange for these guys to uh, ar- arrive in Missouri or Ohio or Florida or uh, Pennsylvania or any other swing state that you would happen to name. And it was it was clear that, uh, you know, there was no kind of policy, uh, like a reasonable policy criteria that was advanced by this other than like, you know, exactly how these people are going to vote and you want as much money flowing into the uh, left infrastructure that's supported by these programs in these areas. I mean, even if the people themselves can't vote it's a really fun exercise to go and look at like man on the street uh, interviews at any of these giant uh, political protests or rallies or however you'd like to characterize them. And you just like when people ask, Hey, I'm, I'm so-and-so from so-and-so media and I'm here covering the protest. Tell me, why are you here? And it's like, well, I work for this nonprofit that uh, we serve the underprivileged, uh, you know, uh, Hmong community of Ohio. And uh, we're just out here because we just think that people should be like, it's that bullshit. Like that is their their profession is advancing this suite of leftist uh, political objectives. And the fuel for that engine is zog bucks that you channel through these programs through hud through the state department resettlement programs through all of these uh like face value programs where the point is to support this infrastructure it's funny how they all end up on npr too as you're mentioning uh, but yeah, about yeah. The, the HUD program. Yeah, it's tough yeah. when you've got to you've got to be at a protest at eleven, and then you've got to do the uh, the call in at uh, twelve. You've really got to schedule your your time, especially when somebody slashed your tires in the meantime. <laughs> I think you know. I think that a lot of it really has to do with they have they they need to keep people occupied. I mean, we saw how oh, definitely when things. 
when things got shut down right during Corona and everything, like what, 40 million jobs went up in smoke. So you, you got to have some kind of adult daycare for these kind of people that you've been forcing into student debt by going in and studying, you know, the gender courses and whatever at the, at the colleges. Um, I think it's something like at least 50%, maybe even more of millennials have some kind of degree or college experience. So they go and they have the mandatory diversity classes that they take and everything. And the whole cultural default is set to, to kind of, you know, squishy left, you know, not like hardcore, uh, you know, whatever, but like a lot of these, these things that these people, they don't, um, there's actually a pretty great article. I, I think it's down now. There's this guy, he, he used the alias Sarge D, but he wrote this article about what, what he called flighty white girls. And basically the idea of like, well, I should be in some exotic locale cliff diving with brown people. You know, what am I doing with my life? And it's like this weird idea that somehow, like, unless you're spending your 20s working for some nonprofit, you know, uh, living in a, 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 a teeny ass little apartment for two grand a month. Um, that you're not somehow like empowered and like, but, but this all plays into the whole overall default that they, that they wanted, you know, this encourages a, a lot of the, the consumer behaviors, of course, but also you have a, a bunch of these like culture warriors, I guess you could say, they're not really warriors, but uh, you know what I, you know what I mean? And they're kind of advancing this agenda without really understanding what they're doing. Uh, and actually, that's the whole point of having a, a dumbed down and, and pliable population in general is they kind of will receive anything you tell them. And they don't really understand the issues, but that's not that's not necessary, uh, you know, from the ruling class's perspective. So they, they, they go and they staff these organizations. And a, lo a lot of the organizations that like the people behind them, obviously, the people that are funding them, the, the thing about the foundations that I found most interesting was looking at who's funding the foundations, right? So like what what is the foundation doing and, and who is it benefiting? So when you look at the mega donors, you know, and I'm not talking about like the $5 donations. It's the same thing like where I went into, I kind of get into the weeds a little bit with some of the campaign finance stuff. And that was kind of my more like idiosyncratic side coming out. I probably could scale back in it a little bit. But anyway, I kind of go into how the whole system works and how it's all done at a remove. Nothing happens directly. And that's the essence of the whole system. And I was actually, of all people, talking to my mom about this because she's reading the book. And she was saying, it does seem like nothing ever happens directly, does it? I said, exactly. Like, that's kind of the whole, they, the smoke and mirrors thing that they're trying to do. The re Everything from the rhetoric of not calling a thing by the thing's name uh, or of the truth, in fact, in many cases increasingly, being opposite what the actual thing is. So they talk a lot about liberal democracy, but it's like, uh, it was Victor Orban said, you know, it's not liberal, nor is it even democratic. So. Uh, you know, the all these things, the kind of overall system that's in place, this it's it's a it is very totalitarian in a lot of ways and not least of which because it's so intrusive and they don't have to police you 24 seven if they've got your fellow citizens basically doing something similar. And they're always looking out like you hear a lot of the major things right now in the BLM stuff going on is people saying it's not enough to not be racist. You need to be actively anti-racist meaning you need to go out root people like us out who are wrong thinkers who are generally reasonable well-informed people productive members of society but are pieces of shit because what we don't think that our country should be overrun by the third world hey silence is violence man and, you <laughs> yeah. know i i'd point out like uh, there's okay 
I have a bit to say on this, I guess. One of the points of setting up that with or with us or against us dynamic is not actually to force people to root out dissent. It's to cause people to self-identify themselves as dissenters. Like, even height of the USSR, like, you know, height of the Red Purges, the the amount of, like, people doing denunciations, like, yeah, it was, like, socially horrifying, but, like, if everybody is literally denouncing everybody else, you see how that doesn't really work just in numeric terms. The point is to find the guy who's like, well, doesn't that, you know, all men are created equal content or character? It's like, ah, we found the Nazi. Good. So uh, it's, it's I, I felt that a, way when they were pushing the trans stuff, too. I mean, it was just yeah, like, it, what, wait, what? Wait, what? Why are we? Right. It, it's it's a provocation. It's not an actual attempt to uh it's not an attempt to kind of uh, corral people into allies. It's like the fact that, you know, their, their core constituency is 5% of the population. That's just fundamentally just like some combination of sociopathic and disturbed. It's like the bio Leninist thesis. And uh, that is not a sufficient amount that you can actually find all the people who are kind of latently skeptical of that project, but uh, are willing to also support at least passively their ideological enemies. Like more more people voted for Trump in Los Angeles than like all of Wyoming, because there's just like a fuck ton of people in Los Angeles. And that means that, you know, looking around, it's like, ah, who's the secret Nazi here? And the way that you identify them for purging is you demand something increasingly ridiculous and you look for everybody who's not doing the, the like, eh, sure, fine, whatever. Black lives, they're great. Like well, anything yeah, lately them. it's been the police officers literally getting on their knees, in some cases on their stomachs in front of these oh, yeah. rioters and there was you know this one dude who didn't do it and of course you know everybody's throwing shit at him but yeah i mean the the compliance testing which you know ironically like you'd think that cops would recognize this because they do this constantly like they like i mean i'm sad that uh cops was actually canceled because the kind of micro sociological dynamics that uh they showed were incredibly fascinating but it's like at, at things like a potentially hostile traffic stop you uh you make like little demands uh to get people in the mode of compliance and then you try to get them to kind of like self-enforce consistency so it's like all friendly chats like hey like you want to turn off your headlights or whatever like can i uh, see your ID, like where are you coming from, where are you going, and it's like then you escalate from there. It's like, well, you said you were coming from this other place, so why are you, why are you going, why are you going there? Like, like the points to cause them to get flustered in order to impose your will upon the situation, which is exactly like if it's like, hey, why, why won't you just say Black Lives Matter? Like, don't Black Lives Matter? It's like the point is to get the compliance, not any sort of. Uh, 
not any sort of like reasoned ideological conclusion that they're trying to lead you into to guide further behavior. It's just a raw expression of dominance. But I guess like, you know, somebody didn't get the fucking memo because uh, I guess they hire people to whom a lot of this is uh, subconscious behavior. It's like, you know, your stereotypical cop who is like high school big shot and sort of picked up a lot of this by uh, osmosis, but not in a way that uh, sort of bears uh, the uh, the reverse uh, once the uh, the tables are turned. How much of, of this stuff, as your mother very wisely, by the way, um, observed... How much of this stuff is really kind of cover for hidden agendas? That's kind of what our show focuses on, obviously, uh, and misdirections and whatnot. But I would draw comparisons right now to maybe not the refugee stuff, but at least the the BLM stuff to climate change, um, to perhaps what was going on with the COVID thing, which suddenly disappeared apparently, but... I think it's going to be coming back uh, once this dies down in terms of the media push for it. Uh, I view all those things as being related in terms of just getting nationalism uh, subdued and getting people to fight against each other and make pave the way to a world government, frankly. Uh, so I view that as kind of the NWO. But how would you sort of assign the immigration refugee stuff to that would you say that there's you know the new world order case to be made or something else yeah i think so i mean i think to me the the climate change stuff is is all about you know resource consolidation and then speculation right and so like they want to have tight control over all of what will become luxury goods like planes uh, and being able to fly places they realize that, of course, uh, whites generally have a higher standard of living and a higher expectation of their standard of living. So we do not like to live in squalor, whereas many other populations are conditioned to it. They reproduce it. So it's fine for them to continue having a consumer economy. It's just the type of consumption is going to be more tightly managed. Um, and what you also have is basically the hollowing out of the middle. This is this has been a very long process that's continued happening but who are the the people that got smashed by the corona the most obviously all the uh small businesses yeah so so you had the small businesses the the independent gym owners you know the small restaurants this kind of stuff and you know i'm a total meathead so the gym thing is like sticks in my craw but anyway um, yeah for people who (laughs) don't do any of this uh in any visual medium whatsoever uh john's avatar is I don't know if it's Dorian Yates or somebody like that, but he's just a, a gigantically ripped uh, looking person. I've heard uh, in Jay, real life. It's he's... Jay Cutler. Okay, uh, thanks. Yeah, I, 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 I wish I was that. Big, I, but... I know about <laughs> three bodybuilder names, but so he, he just kind of had blondish hair. So I figured oh, maybe that, that's him, but cool. Uh, so obviously, yeah, I just, <laughs> so yeah. I, I've heard that you do that in real life too. So you're not, you're not just a, a, a kind of a, an academic. You've, you've got some masculinity apparently which is great. Yeah. Yeah. I like, I like the iron. I've been doing it for, for a while and uh, it it really helps balance me out. Um, But yeah, it's, you know, all the, it's, it's basically all the kind of make work and service sector jobs and all the small businesses, the independent businesses. 
And what you had is basically everything being funneled to the top, you know, the Amazons and, and the Walmarts. Also, my opinion is on the BLM thing. I actually think it's it's two things. Primarily, it's because the Fed has more or less become dominated by BlackRock. Um, so basically what was happening around the time that, because keep in mind the, uh, the Arbury, Ahmed or Arbury or however you pronounce it, that actually happened in February. I believe it's armed robbery. Armed robbery, uh, steel, steel toe jogger um, was, that was like in February. And all of a sudden that became an issue right around Floyd and stuff. So my opinion is that with all the financial stuff going on behind the scenes and, of course, all the financial instability, I mean, this has the potential to be way worse than 2008. And all the same things that were going on then were being basically recreated. And I think it was a misdirection. I don't think they wanted people to see what uh, these big money managers like BlackRock were doing. And it was described by one insider as it's being now described by one insider as uh, the fourth branch of government. So basically, the continued privatization uh, through these big financial firms and their basically domination and, and ability to dictate the terms to the government, which then, you know, that you have the continued privatization in all the wrong ways for the state. And I think that was meant to misdirect. The second thing, of course, is that the only thing that holds the I call it the island of misfit toys. The only thing that holds them all together is us, is anti-white hatred is having a bogeyman. So. With Corona, which is kind of the invisible enemy, you know, they're saying all these things were all in this together, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And then, of course, they switch gears completely. And, you know, white supremacy, racism is a killer. Uh, in some cases, Corona is literally white supremacy is death, blah, blah, blah. Well, this is all part of the psychological control aspect, the gaslighting aspect. Um, and it's also ability for them to marshal force and power. And then if they figure that they have... Uh, um, more regionalistic sentiments rising, which of course people are realizing, oh, the entire country has been hollowed out. We don't manufacture anything here. Um, you know, all that kind of stuff that's producing much stronger support for a more autarkic economy for more nationalism. And of course that has to be destroyed as well. So I feel like actually it's more three things that, that all that stuff is, is, um, is functioning. And also like, uh, I actually wrote an article for Occidental Observer a couple days ago about BLM and who's funding it. And it, it is all the usual suspects. It's everyone you would expect, um, again, behind this pumping huge sums of money into it, uh, and, and really helping to create the anarcho tyranny kind of environment that, um, we're living through today. I think it's an interesting dovetail with Occupy Wall Street. Like, I kind of have the impression that a lot of uh, our listeners are on the younger side, but I think that at least half of them are probably old enough to remember uh, how Occupy Wall Street, it kind of had a, a fair number of different interpretations, but it was the same sort of uh, genesis in a combination of an environment of underlying uh, economic uh, precariousness combined with uh, this kind of extremely overeducated uh, vanguard that was fundamentally just pissed off that they didn't have cushy grad school jobs uh, and was derailed in the, uh, a, you know, a similar, uh, at least by theme uh, manner as we see today, by identity politics, like the main Occupy Wall Street uh, camp in uh, whatever uh, plaza that was in New York, where it degenerated into a complete shit show disaster after uh, somebody had the bright idea of, 
well, we have to have a progressive stack so that oppressed voices can speak first because that's what this is really about, like the oppressed, the Browns. It's like, no, we're, we're, we're all pissed off at those guys over there in that other building. Like, yeah, but, you know, but black voices, trans voices, trans black voices especially. <laughs> indigenous trans <laughs> Right. Indigenous, like you got the indigenous black trans voices and it's like she, like we, we was Native Americans, like building pyramids in the lower Mississippi Delta. And then we chopped our dicks off. It's like, well, there, there's a lot of layers here. And the more layers that you have, the, uh, the, the less cohesive, obviously, uh, any sort of, um, very diffuse to begin with, uh, movement, uh, ends up as, I mean, there's the, there's the graph that's circulating on Twitter about how like, wow, I guess uh, black lives matter is just going to be a quadrennial, uh, slogan now. Uh, just, uh, you know, every, every election year, we're going to remind ourselves that, uh, it's, uh, it's that time again. <laughs> well, and yeah, they have to constantly be upping the ante, right? So it's like black lives matter. Well, you know, well, what about black trans lives? Like you said, so it's like, I, I call it intersectional Jenga. It's like, you know, each little block, they've got to pull it out and, and put it on the top. Well, and, and that's, you know, everyone's that's intentional. And that's something that the kind of old school leftists uh, would talk about, that identity politics are a way of subverting uh, the actual existing class interests. And these kind of micro identity politics uh, are a way of uh, diffusing Chomsky broader identity describes politics. describes multiculturalism as a vehicle of capitalist domination. Right. I mean, this, this like that's the consensus interpretation and the fractal identity politics. It's like, sure, like black people, but, you know, light skin privilege. I'm not quite sure, like where the light skin line is, but I just I think it's it's hilarious to just toss them out on on Twitter. It's like you, you get a lot of flack, but uh, it's, it's interesting. Well, a lot of them, too. It's it's bizarre, actually, how many of the most you know, uh, aggressive of these people are actually really quite white skinned. And I think it is this kind of like gnawing guilt of, okay, you know, I am, uh, I don't know if it's like half of the, their gene is genome is oppressing the other half or whatever, but it's like the same. It's also this, higher agency to be honest. Yeah. That's that too, actually. Yeah. The, it's the like kind of the, uh, the same reason why, like, you know, in, in, uh, in like proportional terms, when something is as rare on the ground as trannies, it's like if you see one, then it's like seeing one, uh, you know, not not to go full uh, biologic mem uh, metaphors, but it's like one seeing seeing one uh, unwelcome guest in your kitchen. It's like, wow, already we're dramatically oversampled if I just see the one and it's because I would guess of this weird uh, uh, crossover with like extreme levels of autism that causes uh, the same reason that there's like huge trans overrepresentation in uh, things like a uh, software development. Uh, they also apparently uh, make really good uh, Antifa, like burly Antifa shock troops. This, this might have been asked already. I came in a little late, but um, what what is the uh, what is the presence of BLM in Maine? Is it substantial? Is it mostly just 
you know, kind of like weird white leftists and you know, who's directing it in a, in a small little comfy state like Maine. I mean, I saw last week there were thousands of people uh, uh, marching in the state capitol. I'm kind of wondering, uh, you know, <laughs> what exactly is driving that? Uh, is there some substantial black population in Maine that, uh, that I don't know about? And just real quick, I've seen a map showing every state in the United States now, and there were a few holdouts in the beginning month or weeks. We're almost at months now, but in the beginning weeks, there were a few mountain states that didn't get this stuff, but now every single state has a BLM. They want to call it a protest. I'm going to call it a riot in at least half of these cases. But yeah, as for Maine, please, uh, John, go ahead. And that was an objective on somebody's spreadsheet, like, Somebody had the the like stretch goal of the you know Hawaiian Alaskan like uh, Black yeah, Lives the, Matter the Alaskan uh, plight of the Negro sharecropper. I mean, like, who are we kidding? You know, well, mostly it's, like... it's it's weird. Like, the black population of Alaska is actually pretty high functioning because it's a lot of ex-military guys who just for whatever reason either they got stuck up there or they decided like you know it's it's fine during the summer i guess you can uh can really catch those rays uh and you get alaskan uh, dibs uh, it's it's not uh it's not exactly a hotbed of uh you know they're they're like uh quote-unquote racial oppression uh narrative is is all with respect to uh their uh, native population like the the idea that uh yeah, you know, my legacy of slavery is uh, kind of far from their consciousness. Yeah, yeah. there's there's not many uh, blacks in Maine, even despite the you know the project to get get them here. Um, it's it is mostly kind of off brand communists and Antifa types and and whatnot who kind of get together and then and then as usual, you know, they practice the tokenism. Uh, but I, I think that the directive is is surely coming from somewhere else, and um, you know they're saying, okay, we'll have some kind of a, a march or something in Portland or or wherever, you know, in in unison with a couple others across the country. Um, I don't really, I don't. It's not, to, to the best of my knowledge, anyway, it's not particularly uh, well organized or, or that much of a factor in the state. But I do know the Antifa is is relatively well organized. I mean, they they found their way up to teeny little Jackman, Maine, near the Canadian border, population eight hundred, to try to harass and drum Tom Kaczynski out of his uh, his uh, town manager's position up there. So those those types of people, they're probably spearheading any B, any uh, BLM activity in Maine. Is is my best guess. Well, it's, hey, it's, well, this brings me to a question I have. Um, so I'd like to discuss. How exactly the best way to fight back against the rat enemy and their pale face collaborators is. And the way that I look at it, when you start talking about a small town, as is, or rather in the case of Maine, a series of small towns that constitutes a state, uh, you have something of a double edged sword because, on the one hand, the good people of Maine, albeit I'm not familiar with Maine, but I can understand the idea here, uh, they're not exactly familiar with the vagaries of international politics and corruption and typically small town people they get bamboozled when the full force of the international jew and its complicit ngos comes bearing down on them on the other hand largely speaking in any given small town you have the people who live there 
normal people, good people who outnumber the rat Jew and their fucking collaborator swine. Uh, where best would you advise people to start? Who, where, what are the weak points of the enemy operations in these places? Because they are largely forward operating bases. They're out in the cold to a certain extent. You know, they're, they are isolated from, from their people. And I think that they could be beaten in places like this. What are the weak points? And can you name names in a way that you could get the good people to do something about these swine? Uh, what are your opinions on this, John? Yeah, I, I agree. I think um, that is one of the main reasons that uh, I, I chose Maine, because I think it is a defensible place. And I think it is a way that we can beat them back because the small town ethos is such that, like, in, in the case of, of Kaczynski and Jackman, they'd never really seen anything like it. And unfortunately, his uh, I think he, I forget exactly how, how it went down, but, you know, the rest of his town, the town council pretty much. Uh, put their tails between their legs and, and kind of sacrificed him. Um, but generally speaking, the the town, the people, uh, uh, there's kind of an intriguing, I don't know, call it like a libertarian streak, but a, self, a very self-reliant streak where the people are very poor consumers from an overall perspective. And so generally, like most people in Maine uh, are getting eggs from a neighbor uh, about half have their own wells, their own drinking water, which is not, you know, with any chemicals or any kind of processing. So a lot of people are, are much more self-reliant than the system wants. So they're more difficult to drum out and harm, especially the downside is, of course, yeah, because they're good, uh, good people who are generally unaware of the kind of viciousness which goes on. Unfortunately, the politicians, as I, as I mentioned in the book, <laughs> on more than a few occasions, take advantage of those people and they, they are, are very well tied into the globalist establishment um, all the way to the top, including the two former senators, Mitchell and, uh, and Cohen. <clears throat> the, um, the people in general, there's kind of a non-judgmental streak, which makes them not think particularly racially, but in terms of like a, a town locality, um, the idea of, of just skeptical skepticism of any kind of outsiders, this is a very powerful thing that can be harnessed, especially when they come in uh, and they start talking about, you know, clean energy or refugees or, or anything like that. People are already starting to push back against the refugee thing, even within the city of Portland, which is kind of like a San Francisco East sort of scenario. The, the people within the, the city government, uh, one of them voted to have the, the mayor, who is Jewish, uh, inv who invited them, censured uh, the town, another guy like pushed back pretty hard against it. A lot of the towns said, no, we're not going to take these people. Um, the guy act, the mayor actually got voted out. There has been a lot of pushback actually. And I think this is a really essential thing in general, not just, you know, in any small town thing, but I think the idea that we have to make parallel networks and we really have to get people to harden their resolve against not giving, uh, any credence to what the outsiders are saying or the pressure they're bringing to bear on them. So we have to get people to be as as detached from the system as possible, making uh, their lives as independent of it as possible and creating basically a parallel system. And a lot of these small towns, they've basically already done that. So now the challenge is going to be, of course, do you have enough people with backbone to stand up when they try to bring their pressure machine if they happen to find a, a Nazi in, in their midst or, or whatever? Hey, man, you know, you got the right take on it. 
uh, I would add a few things. I would just say, first of all, yes, it's most important to not be a pussy about it. But Hank was talking earlier about how, you know, they get money, but it's chump change in the grand scheme of things. You know, some, uh, you know, toxoplasmosis infested single 40 something year old woman getting 40 grand a year, whatever it is. Hey, that's something when you start looking to the working people of the town and you say, this person's getting 40 grand to sell you out, man. That's something. And you can run with that. I'm just saying. Yeah, I think so. And I think when you bring up, especially to like good, hardworking people in the country, when you bring up the issues of corruption, like that's that's the biggest one, even more so than the refugee thing that I've had success on people is pointing out the double standard and the corruption of the politicians and saying, look, in case you're wondering, you know, this individual basically got kickbacks to do this, quote, clean energy thing, which, by the way, put half of your town out of work because they're not using the mill anymore. What do you think about that? And that infuriates people. You know, the thing is, and I'm not, you know, and I'm not saying anything stupid here, but these people have names and names, you know, like they, they are people and they can be identified. And the fact of the matter is when you're running ops in a small town, small white town, a working class people, you're outnumbered. And you may think that, you know, somebody else has got your back and they're going to be flooding your bank account with, you know, that sweet fucking Jew money. Well, that's exactly the thing that's going to turn people against you when they find out, because typically they don't understand how this game works, man. They're, these are people living their lives trying to take care of their families. You know, these are good people and they don't they're not as cynical as we are. They don't get how this game works. And I think that if listeners are in, you know, small towns like this, you put these people on blast, man. Refugee Resettlement Watch has been great on all of these issues, and they uh, have a lot of primary source documents. And, uh, you know, if you want to dip your toes in the uh, the FOIA game, um, all these federal contracts produce copious amounts of documentation in every direction, all of which is uh, is uh, discoverable. Well, not even discoverable, but like just file the form and wait for them to screw it up and then file the appeal. And then eventually you'll get your documents. Well, John, I, I would ask, uh, is the economy of Maine doing well where people feel secure and kind of content with life? So they're more willing to put up with, uh, things like refugee resettlement or these other issues, or, uh, is it like Nick is saying, and they're just sort of bamboozled, uh, and the economy of Maine is, is in fact, not doing well. Uh, my understanding is that Maine has kind of had a declining population. It has uh, some opioid issues. It, you know, it's, it's seen the loss of its lumber industry. Uh, some manufacturing has gone away. You know, kind of, is it that these people are just being bamboozled, or do they kind of feel content enough with uh, their economic life to maybe indulge some of this? Well, they definitely are not, um, you know, especially compared to uh, the rest of the East Coast, like they're, for the most part, they're not in particularly good shape. The state's pretty much had its ass kicked. I mean, all of its traditional industries have um, been just annihilated. It does very well from tourism, which is a double-edged sword, of course, because that's where they get all the temporary worker visas and the demographics get the, the demographic transformation gets a foothold on that front. Um, the people are generally pretty content with not a lot though. Like the, the standard of living maybe isn't 
particularly opulent. I mean, there are some very wealthy areas, don't get me wrong, particularly in the southern area and dotted along the coast. A lot of that's out of state money and people who are from elsewhere who, who come who go up to Maine and mostly uh, New Yorkers, I assume. New Yorkers and, and uh, what we call them mass holes. Yeah. Um, who yeah. come up and, you know, they will buy a property. The NFL commissioner has a house. You know, the Bushes have a compound, um, uh, the Rockefellers, you know, this kind of thing. And then unfortunately, they have a very negative impact on the politics of the state because they, try, they start getting involved in bringing out of state money into elections and start trying to terraform it. In, you know, the environment that they come from bring that kind of these cosmopolitan uh, anti-values to places like Maine and, and New Hampshire has a similar phenomenon with its lakes region. And, and they bring uh, you know, these kind of anti-values there and they try to transform their liking. And this is a huge problem. But the thing is, a lot of the people are very content with kind of doing their own thing left alone. And if you start bugging them, particularly when you point out things like the corruption the fact that you know their 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 way of life is actively targeted. This is infuriating, and people do push back. And there's a great benefit to, to a lot of the New England towns is we have the town hall system. So we have to have open debate on a lot of this stuff. And there's a pretty rundown city. I, 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 there's a brief anecdote in the book about a uh, very rundown city in Vermont called Rutland, and. Um, the, they tried to pump a bunch of, uh, I think it was Sudanese or Syrians or something, in, into, the, into the city. And the, the, the state, I can't remember what level of government it was, was trying to get kind of screwy with the numbers and wasn't really letting people in. And a bunch of people got organized. They got some stuff going on Facebook, and they were able to push back against the refugee resettlement and actually make sure that not a single person could be settled there. So a lot of it, too, the Refugee Resettlement Watch, that's a great website trying to keep up with this stuff. One thing I could tell people is if you go to the U.S. State Department, uh, I think it's the Bureau of Population. I'll, I'll send the link to you guys so you could let people know. You can actually go in and type in your town or your state and figure out, are they, are they putting people there? Are they earmarking people there? And this is, of course, only the official stuff through the State Department, but it's a start. And if we can be aware of this stuff, we can get really the key going forward is going to be local activism. We've got to be local. We've got to be thinking locally. Um, and of course, information dissemination is vital. But as far as our actual actions, they have to be on the local level pushing back against this stuff. And, and that's another reason why, again, other than being a New Englander, and this remains very important to me, is, is one of the reasons I focused on it so much is because I could go to the local granular level and say, look, on a town level, these are things that are happening. And of course, you can push back against that on a town level. You, you know, John, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that despite myself not knowing a lot about me and I, what, everything you're describing is a perfect microcosm of the dynamic that's playing out in the Qua. You know, I mean, you have these places that are beautiful in some respect. They got wilderness, they're safe places, white places, and they become the second haven for these pigs who have fucked up the major metropolitan areas. You know, they're their second home. They're their refuge. And then they come in and they stick their same greasy fucking tentacles into the town city commerce and they play their same games, you know, and they usually have a few front businesses. You know, typically it's going to be, you know, hipster joints or something like that. And it's important to remind people and you point out where it is this money's coming from, who's backing these things. You know, you want to support the businesses 
that are of the people, that are of the local people. And you want to remind people that, you know, these businesses that represent enemy strongholds and understand them to connect the dots is not too difficult. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Nick. Again, these people put them on blast and hit them where it fucking counts, and that's their wallet. You know, these people are greedy sellouts to begin with, and that's the only thing that they care about is money, so make them hurt where it matters. Yeah, I, I happen to live in an area similar to this where there's there's people from out of state that come in that, who have money, and it's um, it's very apparent that their politics are uh, at a tangent to the locals, and the locals vary, obviously, but there's there's striations within the locals too because they have an aspirational element that wants to be more cosmopolitan and then you have your your real leave me alone traditional american types who are pretty easy to spot but you do have to be careful when you're interacting with people because in a small town you will be remembered and what i would say as a point of advice uh, in addition to what john was saying about finding out uh, if your town is being targeted for diversity uh you can make anonymous tips on ice uh on the website you don't have to use your ip address either uh, unless you want to be really obvious but you can go in from a vpn or whatnot uh, and just leave a tip and see what happens if you see people who are showing up in these service jobs that are typically staffed or should be staffed at least by locals uh who are there because they're cheaper Incorporations prefer them because they're more pliable and they can uh, choke their throat uh, by threatening to get them deported. Uh, you can report on this stuff. So it's just a small thing to do in a safe way that hopefully won't get you targeted by the town Karens. Looking at the recent events that have been taking place, we know what, very well that the cities have been lost and the feds aren't going to do shit about it. The battle for what's left of America is going to take place in these small towns. And if we can develop a model for how to fuck these people, it can be done and it can be replicated. You know, it they are ultimately outnumbered because you show up somewhere, you know, you start throwing money around. But overall, your purpose there is to ruin the quality of living of the, of the good people of America, you know, of these small towns. That's your purpose. And if you make that understood to the people and you allow them to participate in fucking these people over with an absolute minimal investment it can be done because they are outnumbered john i, I would ask um do you, you know actually two questions more political regarding maine um one maine uh kind of seems like a generic blue state sort of generic new england blue state uh i guess my first question is is that really just sort of tied to the um, New England kind of working class, manufacturers class um, ethos that the Democratic Party captured many decades ago? Uh, and two, I would ask, um, do you see or know of any uh, Canadian influence on Maine? Um, I, I, I only say this. Great question. Huh? So, and, I, and I say this uh, gen genuinely. But, um, you know, o Occupy Wall Street was in of itself a Canadian movement at first. It was sort of exported to the United States. Um, there have been. Go off, bro. Well, I, I'm not I'm not trying to be a polemicist. I'm honestly just asking. But 
people have told <laughs> me that, 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 that there is some amount of Canadian influence, um, maybe just culturally, uh, in northern states across America. Um, and do you see any of that? Do you see any um, kind of members of ma- main party politics who talk about emulating Canada or trying to uh, ingratiate themselves more with uh, the Canadian political class? Well, interestingly, the most overlap has been uh, with Tom Kay. Actually, he's been trying to kind of coordinate with a lot of the guys who are uh, nationalists or nationalist minded in Canada. And actually, eventually, the idea is, you know, should the United States um, project not be sustainable, preserving the kind of maritime Canadian culture with kind of a greater, uh, like a Northern New England state kind of alliance with these guys. They almost have our own kind of breakaway state, our own country where, you know, we, we can kind of do our own thing. And yeah, a lot of it is, they're kind of Democrats of the old school variety, the col- the colorblind, you know, I don't see race sort of people, hardworking, blue collar, um, you know, that kind of thing. And unfortunately, like things do move a little slower in a lot of ways. So people don't fully grasp that this liberalism that they think that they're supporting is way beyond. Obviously, it was never supposed to, you know, that was never the goal. Uh, it was just a means to get these people on board. But, um, you know, there there's a lot of inter- there's a lot of interchange, a lot of cultural interchange and stuff, though, between um, Maine and uh, and Canada especially French Canada, if, if you go inland a bit, uh, there's quite a few Acadian French. A lot of people speak both languages. There's a heavy French-Canadian culture in Maine still. Um, and that there's a lot of, there's a lot of um, communication between the two. There's not a lot of, of drive to like emulate the kind of overall Canadian governmental style. I think people pretty much prefer the very uh, like town hall, very localized type of government. Um, the idea that you would kind of appeal elsewhere for help in anything is generally looked down upon by most people to, to this day. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a, it's a strange mix because a lot of the people vote, um, Democrat, but they live, they have much more right-wing values and, and they live more right-wing. As a matter of fact, in the last, Maine's one of two states where um, the electoral votes can actually be split. And in 2016, the state was split between uh, uh, Trump and Clinton for the electoral votes. Uh, and it has a lot of, yeah, the Republicans are all globalist cucks and they're awful. Um, but it does kind of oscillate between the two. And the last the last governor we had, he was, he was very, I say we, I don't live in Maine, but um, the 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 glass governor was was very clueless but actually really tried to do some stuff but he was just so like ridiculous and incompetent it actually backfired and i go into the book about the refugee resettlement he tried to get maine out of it um but there's a there's basically a a provision that that allows the federal government to then choose a a uh, one of these ngos to basically fully run the refugee resettlement um they still get government funds and stuff but they run it in lieu of the government so because it's at a technical remove, they can actually get more people in. And that's why in the last three years, especially Maine has seen a dramatic increase in the number of, uh, I, I call them equatorials, uh, the number of equatorials who have gone into the state. I, I have another question here. So 
I'd like to first encourage people. I, I'm going to give a hard endorse to what to what John is doing here because this is exactly the kind of thing that I think is effective politics. Uh, as I said earlier, I think that the main struggle point in America is going to be these small towns and to be able to name names and to display the network. It's a lot easier to do in a in a you know, in a place that doesn't have the same level of political infrastructure as a big city where you start dealing with international interests, okay? Not to say that there aren't international interests that are bearing down upon these small towns, but my question to you, John, is if someone who lives in a small town or has, you know, a small town near them that, that is potentially something that could be defended, uh, what would you, advice would you give? give as far as methodology for how to go about breaking apart these networks and being able to lay them out. Maybe you're not going to write a book like John did, but maybe you can make some pamphlets or something or you know, whatever it may be to let people understand the games that are being played against you. Where, where do you start when you start to you know, try to crack these and understand where that money's coming from and who the major players are? That's, you know, that's a, that's a great question. I'm trying to, I, I've been kind of thinking about that myself now that the you know the the exercise of mapping it all out has has passed you know i've gone through it and i've pretty much said like okay here's what it is so how do we start getting those pressure points how can we make this be felt you know i think this you know it's very difficult on a large scale to say we're going to do any kind of boycott because the system's so interconnected but in a place like maine there are a lot of businesses that are not uh, they're good size but they're still somewhat local and i think that it can be it can definitely be effective to put some local pressure on that you can also um a lot of the the local politicians are hyper responsive to any kind of negative outside criticism so again i mentioned the media the regular media is in a stranglehold but the kind of birth of alternative media and the way that like i said uh you know this group in this small city in, in vermont was able to kind of get mobilized through the social media uh, and go to the town halls. The thing is, the town halls are huge because they have to make these public, and they're televised, by the way. So they have you. They have to put things on the agenda that the townspeople request. You can mobilize the force of your people. You can go to these town hall meetings. You can push back, and you can bring any kind of negative attention. These people, these local politicians, do not want any kind of negative any kind of negative attention. They they are trying to go. Uh, especially if what they're doing is seedy or has the view of being, um, you know, corrupt in any way, shape or form. I mentioned, unfortunately, the, the ones who didn't have the backbone and kind of threw Tom K under the bus. But the kind of uh, similar principle goes, but it kind of in a different way, is the idea of these these people do not want to, uh, you know, be kind of cast out of their community for, let's say, doing something really shady and trying to facilitate things through the back door that people just do not want. Um, and those things are all really good. And, and people, you're going to have uh, much more of an impact because you have relatively small populations and also because people generally know each other. They interact more. Uh, there's a lot more, the, the kind of good old fashioned word of mouth through the grapevine, legitimate, genuine grassroots stuff is a lot more effective on that level. And if these people lose face in their small towns, like they're they're ruined effectively. So you can bring a lot of pressure to bear uh, along those lines, too. And, you know, those things, I think, if you're looking politically, uh, you can also get yourself in a position where you're in 
I'm like, you don't necessarily have to run for office yourself, but you can get yourself in some kind of position where you can be influencing maybe where things are being funded or where things are going. And if you have a say, hey. I mean, maybe you do get on a town council or something, but you're, you're, you're you know, quite right about too, all like that. I mentioned and- the different businesses, you know, if you have a business, like I mentioned, um, a couple of these like seafood companies and stuff like they, they do some decent volume, but they're not at the level of an Amazon or something. So you can, you can work with people and try to come up with some kind of a pressure campaign. Um, and as I mentioned, a lot of the, even the, the very local media is going to be more responsive probably to things that you might bring to their attention as well. Well, that's in the nature of these kinds of operations. They're going to be again, setting up businesses or greasing the already established businesses, and it's not that hard to draw up a blacklist. You know, you find out who who are taking these this money, you know, who are in any way attached to these these NGOs, and you can take it to something like your local local city meetups. Be it you know, God forbid, the G, your local GOP, you know, you know, vomit in your mouth all you want, but it's true. I mean, people are going to show up there, and if you can give a simple list to people and say these are the people who are working against you. You know, you can hit them again where it hurts, right? In their pocketbooks. Yeah, that's a huge one, the financial aspect. And uh, and again, the idea of you have these smaller towns, the, the people's reputation uh, and their ability to have face in the community, like this is a huge thing for people. You know, it's not like a city where you can just disappear. So this is a, this is a big thing, the social... Um, you know, you call it social shaming aspect or, or pressure anyway, those things are crucial. Um, and I think also the ability to be more self-reliant and to set up kind of, um, like I mentioned before, parallel structures, you know, the idea that you could have a much more, uh, unofficial, uh, economy in a way, um, you know, you can, you can try to find a way to, to starve these people out. Um, and I think that there are, you know, there's, I'm sure that I'll have much better answers in the future because I've, I've, I've kind of been transitioning from the, okay, I've got the information now to like, what am I going to do about it? Um, you know, and I've been focusing on trying to get all that information out, but I think the more you can kind of band people together as well, uh, along these lines and kind of, um, try to influence things along a whole bunch of different vectors from political to financial to, uh, what have you, all of that is going to be really essential. And trying to get as many like-minded people together uh, is also crucial. Well, any given small town regime is backed up by very few key supporters. And if those key supporters in that small town regime is treasonous, uh, they're not that hard to take down with any kind of serious and deliberate organized effort. Just saying. Uh, I I guess I I have uh, another question. Kind of regarding what you said about the the maritime culture of Maine, uh, is that still a an active part of Maine's culture? Do people take a lot of pride in that? Um, it's still a lot of uh, recreational boating, recreational fishing, um, and, and do you see uh, maybe the younger what what's left of the younger generation of Maine um, continuing to hold on to those traditions, or are they more interested in kind of importing? Uh, the metropolitan new life from the more uh, affluent parts of the country? I think it's it's a mixed bag. I think there are a lot of people who are still in, you know, interested in the 
maritime way of life or inland. Um, you know, there's still some uh, lumberjack uh, career paths. If you want to go down, you want to be a lumberjack, you want to be out in the wilderness. Um, there's still a little bit of that, even though a lot of the mills have closed. I think there still is a fair amount of support for that. But I do think, unfortunately, they have done a fairly decent job of convincing people that you need to move down to Boston or you need to get into the bigger cities and uh, go the kind of white collar route, very much denigrating the traditional stuff or even stuff just generally working with your hands. Um, I'd say there's more interest in it than a lot of places, which is encouraging and can be pushed back upon the idea that like you need to go to some, you know, do some sort of third tier thing that isn't going to be worth the investment. I'm not denigrating going to college, obviously, if there's, if it's worth it for you, but a lot of people go simply because they're pressured to go and there's no reason for them to go, you know, and if you become a welder or get your commercial driver's license or, uh, you know, electrician, plumber, a lot of the trades, which are things we need, which is a lot of the justification for, oh, we need to bring in these, you know, people from El Salvador, you're in much better shape. And I think, fortunately, there still is enough of that culture left, especially in the, the more rural parts of the state, which is actually most of the state, that that is, it's, it's at a fairly decent stasis. The thing that I worry about, though, is demographically, it is one of the oldest states in the country as well. And so as the people who are in middle age start getting older within the next 10 to 15 years, if there aren't sufficient numbers of, of kids who want to follow in those footsteps, a lot of it is people will follow in their parents' footsteps still. I know a lot of people, let's say who their dad's a mechanic and then they become a mechanic, uh, or a lot of people who are builders and that kind of thing. And there still is a lot of that family business mentality in Maine, which is very good, but I worry in some of the slightly more densely populated, again, these are all things relative because it's not a very high population place. Some of the higher population places, the, the, the uh, perceived need of people that's being pushed in the public schools, especially to go and get those, well, I don't really know about the private schools. I can't speak to that, but in the public schools anyway, to go and do that, you know, five year liberal arts degree that isn't really going to give you a return on anything. You know, what are you going to, what are you going to do with that? I think the liberal arts are awesome. And I think an education should be pursued just for the love of an education. But from a practical perspective, if you're going to get yourself in huge amounts of debt, is there a return on that? Can you not learn the liberal arts while also being an electrician? Of course you can, right? Like some of the smartest people I know are, are autodidacts. Like you don't have to lose those skills. And then again, you're less reliant on someone else to do it. You're more self-sufficient. Um, uh, you know, um, my, my friend Pikachu describes it as deconsumerizing yourself, finding out where you're going, that you're supporting the system. What can you do for yourself? Can you get even a, a kind of a, a miniature barter economy going locally where you say, yeah, I'll go and I'll do some, you know, pipe fitting for you. You come over and you do something else. You know, of course, we're still going to have to be tied into it somewhat with the nature of the beast. But the more self-reliant we can get and the more we can kind of find alternatives i think that that's huge and also really important and one of the reasons why they target places like maine and these rural places too because they are much more outside of their scope and their realm of control than the urbanite who really can't not all urbanites obviously but a lot of urbanites the kind of gray collar urbanite barista types whatever that can't do anything or don't know how to do anything and of course some can certainly but the the ideal is the kind of stereotype you know, the, the one who's gone and kind of doesn't know how to change a tire, that kind of thing. 
if I can well, jump in, unless Hans, you want to finish well, up on that I thought. I just want to say, it's, it seems like kind of what you're advocating is maybe a, uh, a return to the economy that Maine had uh, in, in the colonial era and in, in the, uh, the post-revolutionary era, you know, a sort of uh, localized uh, workman's economy that wasn't too, even, you know, even then Maine was not well-connected to the uh to the rest of the country it was always a uh kind of a frontier zone um you know i in some ways i i think that uh, maine's best option would probably be on some level leaving the united states i i you know what exactly does maine get from being a a member of the united states anymore is uh is a really dubious uh proposition i don't know well, how much they've, they've gotten out of it historically none of us get anything man well my wider my, my point i'm being serious point taken point taken the, the, the I, I i think it's good i was gonna say yeah i i don't believe that uh yeah first of all none of us do but um the the main uh this guy i've referenced tom kaczynski a few times because his kind of ideal is this version, he calls it New Albion, and it's basically the idea of you're going to have a breakaway state which uh, comprises basically everything north of the Merrimack River uh, in New England, which is like a small amount of Massachusetts with uh, Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, upstate New York, which really in a lot of ways is an extension of those states, and quite possibly into the Maritimes in Canada. Very culturally similar, ethnically not even racially ethnically generally pretty similar and that would be kind of its own pseudo agrarian society which really doesn't need or want for much it's 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 never going to be high population density but the infrastructure is there for some actually some pretty legitimate manufacturing um the creation of seagoing vessels and a lot of that stuff like bath iron works in maine is where a lot of big navy uh vessels are made so there's still a lot of uh, there's still a lot of things, a lot of commodities that that can be produced there, um, and it could be a very self-reliant area, which really doesn't need uh, too much. In general, I think I, I, I like local. I, you know, I'm an ethno-nationalist. I, I'm and I'm very much a regionalist and a localist. The more autarkic or self-reliant a nation-state. And I view New Albion basically as a nation state. It's 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 got all the makings of one. If the United States doesn't hold together, um, the the better. And and that goes for all people. You know, like like the ability. You know, the one of the great crimes of the 20th century is is in Nigeria, the Bia, in Biafra. You know, the the Igbo people trying to secede and having a million of them starved to death because they were not allowed to leave this confederation by the other tribes that mobilized against them. It's very disturbing. It's very disturbing. It's a very important lesson for us to learn from that, though. Um, and and uh, but anyway, but I, I think the idea that not just Maine, but any, you know, any number of regions across the, the world, not just the West, even um, would really have what they need. It's just this consume, expand at all costs, exponential growth, neoliberal model that is is damaging us so badly. Um, and I think that if, if that that we can break that uh, you know that's going to be huge we really need to yeah i don't i didn't speak about it too much but my most optimistic take for our future would be 
I think we can take some of these towns. I think we can take some of these areas, you know, we can, we can run the local show there. And if we can you know, you practice localism in some form of, you know, autocracy, then you can proceed from there to form some kind of national and then maybe even international alliance on that, on those grounds. I just wanted to add to what you were saying as far as the, the globalist pigs don't exactly know what to do with somewhere like that and how to run their games exactly because it doesn't have the same infrastructure that you find in a major city. I can tell you from experience, the main place that they'll run these hops, look to look to the service industry, look to hipster coffee shops and breweries and look to who owns them and look to where they're getting money and who they're friends with because you're not going to come in and start you know, actually trying to do real industry, your pop-up business, your, you know, forward operating base of, of enemy infrastructure is going to be something easy to set up, something trendy. Uh, you know, you live in a place like this, look to it, look to who owns it and look to, look to who they're buddy, buddy with and follow the money. If I can jump in. Yeah, you got... please do. Okay. Um, so I, I support all of the, the thoughts on localism, on regionalism. I think that's, what we all want and definitely it would be healthier for the people to get it. Uh, the, the, the concern I have uh, is they just don't want to let you leave. I mean, it's the hotel California syndrome and we've seen that you just brought up Biafra. Uh, we saw that in the United States with the civil war. We've seen it with uh, probably attempts to shut down the free state project. Uh, I don't have particular facts on that, but I, in talking to people, you, you get the sense that this is not an, a really easy option. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with the powers that be wanting to keep the empire together, obviously. Uh, so what I really want to know, and this is an open question, I'm not asking anybody in particular here, but I want to know how do you compete? Uh, because nobody's just going to let you do what you want. You have to have the power to do it. And typically in our system, that's that means money. And the, the hold on, Nick, the, the question yes, specifically, though, is take your region uh, and uh, I have, I've known a couple people that have been from that part of the world. And the impression I get is that there is a huge brain drain going on. And this is a phenomenon that is a global phenomenon whereby the most talented people have the incentives to go to where they can exercise their talent the best. In other words, reap the most reward for it. Uh, so they get paid the highest salaries in places like Silicon Valley. If you're a tech person, uh, even though there's insufferable quality of life there uh, as seemingly getting worse by the year, uh, the salaries uh, are very enticing to people. So bright people, it used to be from the Midwest, but now it's from India and China and all these other countries are sucked into these metropolitan areas. And that the same thing has happened to places like Maine. And so what you're ending up with is in general, a lot of rural areas are like this, logging towns throughout the country and throughout the world. This phenomenon is the case where you have these places ending up with a bunch of older people who are retired. Maybe there's some tourists that come in perhaps because it still retains its natural beauty, but all the industry is gone and all the, the middle is, is stripped out. And yes, you could try to set up, you know, an autonomous uh, farm or something or have a, a local small business making artisanal knickknacks. But the problem is it just doesn't generate enough power. It doesn't scale. And, 
I think that's part of the point because it gives people jobs and opportunities. But the problem is we're, we're in a global system. We're competing against an empire that knows all this and doesn't want to let you become free. And the only way you become free, unfortunately, it seems, is by getting a lot of money. Uh, so I, I just don't have an easy answer to this one other than doing what you can in secret uh, wherever you can get the most bang for your buck. But I, I do want to throw in that to the conversation because I think if you're a really talented person and you're staring at a, an offer from some evil corporation that can pay you a million dollars a year, I would say go do it and then take that money and then build up your your politics later in life because if you're just going to stay in your small town unfortunately yes you're depriving those people of, of your talents but you're not going to be able to compete against this system if you don't get the most out of life that you possibly can wherever that may be in the world hard to put a price on freedom though man uh i wanted to add in just a question uh if i'm not mistaken john wasn't Maine, the first state that tried to secede from the Union? Uh, that I don't know, actually. Um, I, I do know that it was created uh, in used to be part of Massachusetts. And they broke it off when they wanted Missouri to join. But um, beyond that, I don't know, actually. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, I know that uh, the New England states have uh, numerous times toyed with the idea of leaving the United States for various reasons. And um, at one point, I think New Jersey refused to ratify the Constitution, and there was uh, uh, there there was even an attempt by New Jersey to explore the notion of becoming its own country. There were attempts by uh, Vermont to do something similar. Um, New Englanders, in my experience, actual New Englanders, uh, are pretty independent people. They're um, they're as you've said, they're very hardworking. Uh, they're very self reliant. Um, they have a knack for creating uh, great systems, um, policy systems, government systems, industrial systems. They have a great knack for creating uh, sort of feedback loop societies or complex societies with multiple levels of administration. Um, and, I, and I guess what I would ask is, uh, do you think that um, New Englanders, you know, despite kind of being butt of many jokes on the distant right um, might actually have the most potential for fighting back. Um, a lot of people seem to look to the South, to uh, to Southerners. Uh, some people look to Texans. Others look to um, the Pacific Northwest and the, the, the Mountaineers of uh, Idaho and Wyoming and Montana and Washington, and the, the American Redoubt. Why not all of us? But, well, my question is, do you think that New Englanders really have more potential because they, um, maybe because they've been abused for so long, but also because they, they seem to genuinely have uh, the longest history of building something sustainable and actually successfully rebelling against, uh, you know, occupiers or, or tyrants? Yeah, I think, I mean, I, I don't know about more so, but yeah, we there is a rich tradition to draw from. I mean, you know, the, the revolution started here. And I think that it's, uh, it 
very it is a very clearly defined geographic region um it's people know exactly kind of what it is it's geographically fairly defensible uh it's kind of on its own up here in terms of america there you know it has like um for the most part like it would really most of its you know the half of the border would just be ocean uh, a lot of it would be a very friendly Canada to us. Uh, the Maritimes in Quebec are very friendly, and there's a lot of trade that goes on between uh, the northern New England states, especially in Canada. And even, you know, possibly upstate New York, I've mentioned before, there culturally is quite similar. So that idea, I think it has that tradition. It has basically everything that it needs. Uh, it's got a lot of industry. It's one of the first areas to industrialize. As you mentioned, it was one of the oldest kind of areas to get set up. It has a conscientious, again, it's New England. It's got a conscientious sense of itself as an, uh, basically an independent entity in and of itself. The people who are from New England are extremely provincial. Um, you know, like they, we have lots of epithets. I'm sure a lot, lots of other places have it too, but if you're not, like if you're not originally from here. Now, keep in mind, my, my family has been in New England for 400 years. So for me, like this is home, it's always going to be home and I would fight and die. If New England was said they would secede, we need volunteers, I would fight and die for it. Absolutely. Um, because it, to me, it's my home. It's not like I don't I, I have allegiance to the United States, obviously, but like not higher than New England. So if New England were to be its own. Hey, entity, that I makes one of us. First. <laughs> Well, I'm rapidly losing faith, I have to say, but uh, <laughs> I'm rapidly losing faith. But, but uh, you know, I, I, I have a lot of uh, belief in New England as a, as a nation waiting to be born. And, you know, yeah, New England, we, we're, the, we're the butt of a lot of jokes because we're, we kind of have this, we, we've got these two strands, right? Like there's the kind of puritanical, utopian, uh, like, world trying to save the world you know uh abolitionist all this stuff but then there's then there's a lot of the puritanical in the sense of like super hardworking, uh very high fertility rates even in a lot of places in rural new england still have pretty high fertility rates actually um and there's there's all this rich tradition of you know because a lot of the people are originally from east anglia um in england which again has a tradition of like one of the first things the Puritans did when they got here was establish Harvard University. And that's no, I know it's a joke now, but it was a gold standard for a long time. And a lot of the people responsible for the 1920s immigration restrictions came out of Harvard. They were wasps out of Harvard. Um, so it's there. It's definitely there. I think that the kind of shit libby streak of the people in charge uh, needs to be broken. And I'm not quite sure how that's going to be done especially in massachusetts which kind of drives the rest of the five states so it would really be i don't know that new england itself would break away it would probably have to be the northern three would have to break away because massachusetts is uh particularly greater boston is just too much of an impediment it's it's too it's got too much influence i think to take the entirety of new england so unfortunately i think you'd have to have like I don't know, northern New England, and then I don't know what southern New England would do. Well, I mean, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but New England is more than self-sufficient from an energy perspective, correct? Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont produce uh, large amounts of nuclear energy. 
Um, from a trade standpoint, probably most, you know, have, have great access to coast, have a lot of historically dug harbors, so could easily do well. Um, is there a real mindset in New England for breaking away? Do, do a lot of New Englanders that you've met throughout the years kind of uh, talk about it, even maybe in hypothetical or jokingly, like the, the notion of uh, making New England more autonomous or independent, or is it something that is kind of only a, um, a fleeting thought at the moment? Only, you know, sort of beginning to resurface due to recent issues in the last 20, 30 years. It kind of ebbs and flows. I mean, about 10 years ago, there was actually a pretty strong sentiment, uh, particularly even among younger people, about New England just basically being done with the whole America thing and just breaking breaking free and doing its own thing. It's kind of at a lower point lately, unfortunately, um, as far as uh, mainstream, what I guess I would say. However, I would say that there has been uh, more serious discussion about how to actually do it and more dedicated people as far as actually discussing what would it look like, what form would it take, who would be involved and that kind of thing. Um, and, and I think if anything, it would take, uh, at least the current trajectory, it would go along more the, the new Albion, um, uh, model that I had mentioned, which would be kind of the Northern three States, plus possibly the kind of Adirondack upstate New York, and maybe the, uh, Maritimes as possible, uh, States as well. I think the Southern, I think particularly Massachusetts, uh, at least eastern massachusetts and there's some pockets in the western part too that are very much in line with the kind of npr type people uh i don't know that there's really any push there unfortunately i think those areas are probably um dead zone ideological dead zones i mean they may be made to come around uh but there are pockets you know, there's still very strong ethnic consciousness amongst the Irish of, of South Boston uh, and the Italians of North Boston. So it's possible they could be pulled along um, to kind of get need to get the uh, need to get the bug in their ear, though. At the moment, it's it's more the, the really kind of more remote people in uh, the remoter parts of like Maine and New Hampshire and Vermont who are giving really serious credence to saying, you know what, like this is just not working. And, uh, you know, why do we need this? We, you know, we, we were not affected by coronavirus at all. I think there were three cases in the entirety of the, um, there was like a couple counties where there were like between zero and three cases in throughout Northern New Hampshire, Northern Maine and, and Northeast kingdom of Vermont. Uh, they're some of the highest, uh, per capita, some of the most well-armed, densely armed populations in the, in the country, actually. Uh, particularly, believe it or not, the Northeast Kingdom in Vermont. So, like, the potentials there, if it even came to something violent, I don't know that it would necessarily, but because to the earlier point about breaking away and, and how the system does not want us to do that, obviously because they're trying to create a more global system, in so doing, a lot of us are actually going to slip through the cracks, one, and two, the system is not going to last forever. It is going to collapse. There are too many moving parts Everything they're trying to do is antithetical to human nature. Um, it, there's going to be a collapse of some kind. It's going to break apart. We just need to have the infrastructure in place to take advantage of it. And if there is some 
token resistance to us leaving, we have to be able to deal with that properly. But in the meantime, because the system at the moment, it, yes, it's very and increasingly unstable, but it's too strong right now to try and make that play. So in the meantime, we need to get people really seriously thinking about what are you going to do when this goes to shit? Because it's not going to last the way it's going. Like it can't. 